And so as we go into this teaching on the Beatitudes, I'd just like for all of us to humble ourselves before him and let's just ask him to come and speak specifically to us. Okay, can we do that? Can you hold your hands up like this just as a sign? We're getting all charismatic here. Just as a sign that you're open, that you want to hear what he has to say to you. Father, we come before you and we are so grateful that you are a God who is good. We're so grateful that you have called us by name and you know us. Before we even utter a word, you know it fully. You know our thoughts from afar. Lord, this morning we do humble ourselves before your mighty hand. And we ask that you would change our minds, Lord, that you would give us revelation of you, that you would teach us, give us insight into your word. Lord, your word is truth, and we long to know truth, Lord. So we just ask that you would speak to each and every individual here. Your words, Lord, life-transforming words in Jesus' name. Amen. I really believe... You know, if we really take the words of Jesus to heart and we really consider them. You know, a lot of times when people talk about Jesus, they're like, oh, he's such a good teacher. But when you really think about it, you know, a lot of times he's kind of portrayed as a little bit of a wimp. You know, and he was nice. He was kind. That's a fruit of the spirit. And he was gentle, but he was no wimp. And we're going to get into that a little bit later and talk about that. Because some of the things he said were a little rough. Like, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. You know? <laughs> nice Jesus said that. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There's some, there's some pretty, pretty intense things. But we're going to try to delve deeper into this. And I just want to say, too, as far as studying the Word of God... You know, this year we're going through the New Living Translation. Next year we'll probably go into something else, uh, a different translation, simply because the original language is so much more expressive and so much more in-depth than our English language. And to go into it and actually study it in the original language just enhances your Bible understanding so much. And, and now with Google and with, you know, the various apps that you can load on your phone. For example, there's, you know, the Strong's Concordance. It used to be, you know, this big, thick, 20-pound book that you'd have to go and look. Now you can just open up the particular passage that you like, click on the, the word that you want to study, and it'll open it up in the original Hebrew or the Greek. It'll tell you what it's related to, how many occurrences there are in the Bible, what the original word is, how you pronounce it, what it means. And so I just encourage you, Go deeper in your study of the Word of God. Like I said, the, the English language doesn't always completely depict it, and I'm not saying that the Word of God is, is fallible in any way, so please don't hear me saying that. I'm saying that, you know, even though a little child can understand the Word of God, we still can continue to go deeper and deeper. There are scholars that give their entire lives to studying maybe even just one particular book in the Bible. I mean, you can go as deep as you want because he's an everlasting God and he's got eternal wisdom. So starting with that, um, I just want to say as we understand the teachings of Jesus, I do believe that it, is, it could bring us transformation as a church, that the adventure church could be transformed. You know, my pastor said that, that we're the adventure book too. 
And we have all kinds of changes that are coming, really exciting changes. And if you're a person who hates change, I just want to ease your, your anxiety by saying they're all really fun and exciting changes. For example, one thing right now, we're talking with the owner of this building about expanding back here so that we can have a little more parking. We're talking about giving a facelift to the church and decorating. And um, we, we have a lot of really amazing things that are that are set to come to be and so I'm just looking forward to not only having a a physical change in our church but also a, a deeper spiritual understanding and a going deeper with the Lord and with the teachings that he offers to us through the word and aren't you so grateful for God's word aren't you so thankful that he didn't leave us to try to figure him out and try to guess Aren't you so grateful? I am so grateful for the word of God. So today as we go into this teaching, I'm going to read out of, the first time I'm going to read it out of the message, which is a super loose translation. It's, and as you'll, as you'll hear as we go into this, but I just want to read you, we're only going to go into three of the, the Beatitudes today, um, starting with uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and It says, when Jesus saw his ministry was drawing huge crowds, he climbed up a hillside. Those who were apprenticed apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed up with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. Now, these are the first three Beatitudes that we're going to study today. Jesus said, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you... There is more of God and his rule and reign. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one who really is most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That is the moment you find yourselves the proud owners of everything that cannot be bought. So as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, how many have, have any of you ever been to Israel? Have you ever seen where the Sermon on the Mount, the 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 Mount? It's it's really not like a mountain because whenever I used to read this, I would always picture like the Wasatch Mountains, you know, these rugged. But they're more like kind of like high, grassy, rolling hills, and it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, Matthew 5, again, 1, this is the New Living Translation. It says, one day when Jesus saw the crowds gathering, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came and gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Now, when it's talking about the multitudes or this crowd of people, it's really talking kind of about the riffraff. It's it's called a throng. It's it's really talking about the down-and-outers, kind of the outcasts, kind of the people that that weren't really accepted by the religious community. And they went and sat down. And also, when it says that Jesus sat down, it meant that he was sitting down to teach. You know, remember, Jesus was a full-fledged rabbi. He knew the, the Levitical law. He knew all of these things. Obviously, he knew the original language since he created it. But he understood all these concepts. And it says when he sat down, it was basically like, like he was going to give them like a teacher to student, like there was going to be a test. And it says that um, his disciples came and gathered around him. His disciples came close to him. 
because they knew that whatever he said had so much weight and it was so important for them to listen to him. And that is an indication that the Sermon on the Mount is not for non-believers. The Sermon on the Mount is for us. It's for those of us who believe. And that's why when you listen to the words of Jesus and you understand the words of Jesus, you can go so much deeper with him. Um, when Jesus was talking, this is kind of a transition also from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Jesus is kind of coming out and saying, you know, you've always heard it said this, but I say to you this. Whenever it says that, what it's basically saying is that the law and the prophets, or not that necessarily the prophets, but the traditions of man, like the church rules, this is what you've heard, but I say to you this. So it's not necessarily something that was, was God-breathed that they've been learning all along. So Jesus is coming and bringing them a fresh perspective. And that's my prayer for us today, is that we could have a fresh perspective of the words of Jesus and that we wouldn't just, oh yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. We wouldn't just go through it like, oh yeah, I've already read that. But we would delve into it. The Beatitudes. Okay, first one we're going to study Matthew 5, 3, it says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In the second one, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the third one, God blesses those who are humble or meek, for they will inherit the whole earth. Now, Beatitudes means the blessed ones or blessings. And the word is makarios, that's the original word, which means a plethora of things. It means supremely blessed. It means fortunate, means well-off, happy, blessed, victorious, fulfilled, satisfied, content, all these things. It's all wrapped up in this one word. And this is what Jesus is offering. He's saying, if, you are, if you're like these people that I'm going to describe to you, you will be supremely blessed, fortunate, well-off, happy, blessed, victorious, content, satisfied, fulfilled, purposeful, all of that. How many of you want to sign up for this right now? Yeah? I certainly do. So the first one, <clears throat> blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Poor in spirit. It says, God blesses those who are poor and recognize and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The poor in spirit here are ones who are desperate. Desperate for God. So, conversely, the rich in spirit, what would that be? Those who are self-satisfied and who are prideful and self-righteous and think they've kind of got it all together, think they can kind of do it on their own. But the poor in spirit are those who recognize absolutely how desperate they are for God. And, and I always say this, God will use whatever means necessary to demonstrate to us just how desperate we really are for him. You know, he uses circumstances in our lives. He uses trials. He uses testings. He uses hardships. And, and we really get ticked 
don't we? When we have to go through something, we're like, wait a minute. He said I'd be blessed. I don't feel very blessed. But yet he uses that to draw us closer to him, to bring us into his kingdom. We're going to talk a little bit more about what the kingdom of heaven means. But the poor in spirit are those who are desperate, kind of the losers. No offense, I'm not calling you losers. But people that are without their own prestige or their own reputation or their own power and significance. Because if you're like that, who needs God? If you can do it all on your own, why do you need God? Incidentally, I'll just mention this to um, wives, maybe spouses. I'll say spouses. I always say the more that you nag your spouse, the less God will speak to them about whatever that issue is that you're nagging them about. Okay? A little bit of owie there. Your first ministry, for those of you who are married, your first ministry is to your spouse. But you need to be talking to God more about your spouse than you are to your spouse about your spouse. Does that make sense? Because if you think that somehow you have the words that are going to bring about a change in them, you might not be poor in spirit. I decided for service I should do this like a Jeff Foxworthy thing, you know. Anyway, if you do this, you might not be poor in spirit. But anyway, um, these are the be attitudes. This is how we should be. We want to be like this. And I just want to bring a little slight uh, correction to the, the church and I'm talking capital C Church, the body of Christ. Currently, we have a pretty lousy reputation. You know, the world does not look at us and go, wow, I want to be like that. What is our reputation? What are, what are some of the things? This is the interactive part right here. What are some of the ways that we're viewed? Bible thumpers. Hypocritical. What else? Judgmental. What else? I'm sorry? Oh, cherry picking. Okay. I thought you said cherry I'm like, that sounds like an Indian tribe. But what, what else? <laughs> the cherry <cherapics. laughs> What else? What else are we? How are we viewed? Hateful. Haters. I'm sorry? Pompous. Self-righteous. Narrow-minded, prideful, judgmental, backward, self-righteous. Okay, so know-it-alls. Yeah, that's kind of how we're viewed. And all of those things that, that we just mentioned are all the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. They're all the opposite of the spirit of Jesus. So I want us, the adventure, I want us to be set apart. I want us to be different. And I'm going to talk a little bit later, but I want us to live. I heard Francis Chan say that we should live a life, and he, this was, is not original to him, but we should live lives that demand an explanation. People should be coming to us asking us, what is it about you? You're so different. That when everybody in the office starts gossiping, you're the one who will speak a blessing instead. Okay? Stepping on any toes? Isn't it so easy? What did I miss? I mean, isn't it so easy for us to just kind of 
become lukewarm in, in that way. But what we need to understand is that truly being poor in spirit means we can't even change ourselves. One of my favorite verses is, he who called you is faithful and he will do it. He who called you is faithful and he will what? He will do it. But I'm just urging us to become the real church, the bride of Christ, the beautiful, spotless, sparkly, radiant bride that draws people unto Jesus. That's what I want to see us become so that people long to know what is it about you that we can give them an answer for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect, not with judgment or self-righteousness or pride or harshness or any of those things. But we can't even change ourselves. To be poor in spirit means you recognize you can't even do it on your own. For example, let me, let me give you some examples of this. Even though you don't steal, doesn't mean you can't have the heart of a thief. Because maybe given the right circumstances, with the guarantee you'd never get found out, you might be a person who would steal. Or adultery. You may not have committed adultery, but in your heart, if, you, if there was no chance you'd get caught, no one would know, you could still be an adulterer internally. Or a murderer if you knew you could murder someone and never get caught, never get found out, is there somebody on your list? Is it me? <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. When we are truly poor in spirit, we recognize that about ourselves. We recognize we could have that tendency. That without the Lord, we are wretched. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a what? A what? Oh, you're so down on yourself. Your self-esteem is so low. No, I just know who I am. I recognize my tendencies. I recognize who I can be. We are desperate. Okay, now's the time. This is the portion of the sermon where I step on your toes. <clears throat> okay, this is going to be our quiz. This is the Jeff Foxworthy part. You ready? Are you poor in spirit? Do you read the word every day? Or do you lean on your own understanding? Are you desperate to know what God's opinion is about things? Or do you kind of try to sit there and you've got your pros and cons on the page? trying to figure it out. If you don't read the word every day, you might not be poor in spirit. <laughs> and I'm not, please understand, I am not legalistic. And I am not, I, I do not believe we are saved by our works. We are saved by works, but it's the works that Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins. It is not our own works, okay? So I want you to know that up front. I'm not saying this is this legalistic thing, you check it off your to-do list. I'm saying if you are desperate for God, you are going to want to read his word. Now, all the forces of hell are going to try to keep you from doing that. There's going to be all kinds of distractions. 
you know, you've got to watch the 13 reasons why, and, you know, you've got to, or whatever, sorry, CSI, I don't know what, what it is. But you're going to want to not read the word because the Bible is not necessarily the thing that's going to scream at you. But if you are poor in spirit, you are going to want to read his word. You're going to want to hear what he says. You are going to make decisions based on his word, not leaning on your own understanding, not putting your hope in your own ability to figure things out. Okay, the second one, do you pray without ceasing? Do you pray continually? Are you always having a conversation with the Lord? If you're not, you might not be poor in spirit. You might not be desperate. Again, I'm not saying this in a legalistic way. Please do not hear that. Here's a third one. Do you give generously? Are you a person who is known for your generosity? Because if you're not, you might not be poor in spirit. Because when you're generous, that says it all belongs to him anyway. Everything I have has been given to me by the Lord. I can use this. I can be generous and I can give because God has given it all to me anyway. And I want to use it as a, as a representation of him because he's so generous and he lavishes us. He lavishes us with all good things. And so if you're, if you're selfish and you're tight with your money and you aren't generous, that means that you feel like you have to be the one who controls it. You're the manager of the funds. You're not open to whatever God would call you to do. Okay, I'll leave you alone. How'd you do? Anybody get an A+. Plus? <laughs> Extra credit. <clears throat> Isaiah was like a, like a rock star prophet. He was like amazing. The, he, there's a whole book that he wrote. But he was like a top-notch prophet, man of God. And yet, when he walked in to the, the temple and he encountered a holy God, this is what he said. It's over. <laughs> Doomed. I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. This is what it looks like to be poor in spirit, to be devoid of your own self-righteousness, to understand that God is holy. It says in Isaiah 57, 15, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity The Holy One says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirits and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Wow, what a promise. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. What is a repentant heart? What does it mean? What does repent mean? You know, you see the guys on the street corner, repent or burn, you know, or whatever it is they say, you know, totally opposite of how Jesus was, right? But to repent means what? Anybody know? Change your mind. Have your mind changed. That's all it means, to have your mind changed, to turn, 
to go in opposite direction. That's what repentance is. And it says that if we recognize our need for God, that he will restore our crushed spirits and he will revive our courage. Isn't that amazing? Um, This week I was talking with a young lady who um, confessed some things to me that she had been hiding for a long time. And uh, when she brought it out into the light, she said, I just, I just can't believe grace can be so easy. Because what, what the, the thing that prevented her from turning or from changing her mind or from being set free from this thing was the fact that she was believing all these lies that, first of all, that I would think differently of her or that I, um, that I wouldn't forgive her, or that I'd yell at her, or that I'd rebuke her, or whatever. But, you know, the example that I learned was from my husband, Eric. He was the most uh, gracious person. You know, I could, I could believe lies all day long and, and not want to tell him because of my own pride or whatever, the second I would go to him and confess, you know, say, I forgive you, always. And he, because he understood. Saved a wretch like me. You recognize, he knew he had been saved from so much that he just extended grace. He was so forgiving and so compassionate. And that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and tender in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Doesn't that sound like a good place to be? It doesn't sound like this horrible, laborious thing where you have to come in dragging the burden of your sins. It's just like you just recognize he is all forgiving. He is all loving. He is always merciful to us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. His kingdom is one of acceptance and forgiveness and grace and mercy and patience and love. Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. Again, our lives should demand an explanation from those around us. They should wonder, how is it that you're so forgiving? How is it that you're so gracious? How is it that you are so kind and you don't speak ill of anyone? How is that? These are the questions they should be asking us. The second type of person we're going to talk about today, it says in verse 4, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And obviously this is one that I've clung to throughout the last year after having lost my husband. And, And I can tell you, he has met me so many times in my deepest sorrow and my waves of grief that just flood over me. 
He's met me there and he's comforted me. He is near to the brokenhearted. And it says that with the same comfort we receive, we'll be able to comfort others. And I know there have been other people who have been able to minister God's comfort to me. And that is definitely a reality. God definitely does comfort those who mourn. But there are three kinds of mourning that we're going to talk about. The first one is this type, the natural mourning. You know, you've lost someone dear to you or you've lost a relationship. But also, there's a type of mourning you, you may be divorced or you may have a child who's gone astray or you may not have gotten a job that you were hoping for or you may have, you know, all of these things. They're natural things that we mourn and we grieve. These are truly losses and God comforts us in those. That's the first kind of mourning. But the second kind of mourning is a sinful mourning. And that's like a, like a jealousy or it's like, you're, you're just sorry you got busted. You know, you feel badly because you got caught cheating on your taxes and now you have to pay this all back or, or you're coveting, you know, that's a sorrow. Like you're lamenting something you think you deserve or something you think God owes you. You know, maybe it's, and I don't want to be insensitive to, to this because I know some of these things fall into the, the category of a natural mourning. For example, um, those, those of you who um, maybe your spouse divorced you, they just left you. But the, the type of mourning I'm talking about is more of a, of a sinful mourning. Um, the type of mourning that, that is not birthed in God. There's a resentment there. And there's a kind of an entitlement. That kind of a mourning, which is, <clears throat> which is not good. <laughs> and it says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from our sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow. That's the kind that I'm talking about, which lacks repentance, results in death. The word mourn is pentheo, which is grief or mourning or sorrow or longing, yearning, loss. And the word for comforted here is parakaleo. And you know the the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, the one who comforts, the one who draws us near, the one who comes alongside And in 2 Corinthians 6.10, it says our hearts ache, but yet we always have joy. And that's the thing. Even though we're mourning, we are comforted, and that is how we can be living life in the kingdom of heaven. But the worldly sorrow is the kind that leads to death. It's the kind that leads to envy. And, you know, the Bible says... By the way, I want to bring a correction here. A lot of, a lot of people say that money is the root of all sorts of evil. It is not money. Money is just money. It's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. The love of money leads people to do things that are ridiculous, things they would normally never do. And so I just want to point that out. But that, you know... That kind of worldly sorrow where, like, say, for example, um, you, you expected this huge bonus at work and you didn't get it. And you're, instead of just going, well, I trust that God is my provider, 
I believe that, that God is the one who is going to supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Instead of that, you get ticked. And you start to get this little <clears throat> attitude kind of a thing going on. That is worldly sorrow. Sinful sorrow. So there's natural mourning, and then there's sinful mourning, and then there's the third kind, which is that grieving and that mourning over our state and over our, not Utah, but our state, (laughs) even though we should mourn over our state too, but mourning over our condition, mourning over our sin, mourning over those things that, that dishonor God, that kind of thing. Incidentally, speaking of Utah, um, I've heard, and I don't know if it's true, <clears throat> but I've heard statistically only 3% of Utah, 3% of Utahns are what they would call born-again Christians, born-again believers. 3%. Man, I feel like, you know what? If you live here, you've probably been trying to get out, <laughs> but... God has you here for such a time as this, and what an amazing honor and what an awesome thing because we are going to get to see the state of Utah one for Jesus Christ. It's already starting to happen down in in Utah County. God's starting to bring change. God's bringing change, and we get to be a part of that. But the thing that keeps us from it is that we aren't poor in spirit. And rather than mourning over our sinfulness, we justify it. We make excuses for it. Well, I'm Irish, so of course I'm angry. Of course I drink, (laughs) right? You know, we make excuses. We blame it on our nationality or, oh, well, you know, I was raised in a home where, you know, we just just watch TV all the time. (laughs) Like that's an excuse or, you know, or, or whatever our excuses are, we make excuses for for our our wretchedness rather than just recognizing our need for God and just getting on our faces and mourning over it and being like Isaiah, I'm undone. God, in the presence of a holy God, I am undone. I'm undone. A.W. Tozer, who's one of my favorites, he says, true obedience is one of the toughest requirements of the Christian life. Apart from obedience, There can be no salvation, for salvation without obedience is a self-contradictory impossibility. We need to preach again. A, A Christ who will either be Lord of all or he will not be Lord at all. And remember the story of the prodigal son? Where the guy, the, there's two sons and the one is like, give me my part of the inheritance. And he goes off and he squanders it. I like the King James. It says he squanders it in riotous living. Doesn't that just sum it up? He squanders it in riotous living. He just goes and blows it on all these worldly pursuits. And it says, and I love this line, it says, and when he had come to the end of himself, he said, I will arise. I will go to my father. I want to tell you, if you have a wayward child, don't lose heart. You do need to pray that they would come to the end of themselves, which is the hardest prayer for a parent because you're opening yourself up and you're recognizing that you are poor in spirit and that only God is going to be able to bring that child back. 
It's a painful thing. But trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Let God work in them, but pray, God, bring them to the end of themselves so that they can say, I will arise and go to my father and say, I've sinned. This is what Tozer says about the prodigal son. He says, the first thing the returning sinner does is to confess. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in thy sight I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Like, make me the lowest in your kingdom. In repentance, we fully submit to the word of God and the will of God as obedient children. And if we do not give him that obedience, I have reason to wonder if we are really converted. And now, again, I'm not legalistic. I am saying that if we are truly converted, Jesus says himself, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, If you are truly saved, if you are truly born again, you are really a Christian, your life will go along with that. You will live in line with that. I'm not saying you're not going to have, you know, seasons where you're just going to be in the desert because that's a reality, right? We go through the desert. But I'm saying that to recognize that we are poor in spirit, to mourn over our our sins, to mourn over our need for him or our, our recognition of that, And then here in Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're having a baptism next week. And if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, you go by the name of Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. It's a command. Jesus commands it. And this is the reason we don't do infant baptisms here. We do, you know, we do baby dedications, but we don't believe in infant baptisms because it says that you should repent and then be baptized. So that's that's what we base that on in case you were wondering. But I I wasn't baptized because of my pride for a long time. I just I was too prideful to be baptized. Until Eric, after Eric became a Christian, he's like, oh, it says to repent and be baptized. Okay, I'm going to be baptized. And I'm like, yeah, so am I. (laughs) And so we were both baptized in a swimming pool. But I want to tell you, if you have not been baptized, do it. Do it. And I've also heard that there are those who are really, really extraordinarily shy and and so you, don't, you just don't want to get up in front of the whole church. And, you know, some people would try to beat you with the, well, if you deny him before men, he'll deny you before the Father. I don't know why I do that with a southern accent, but it just happens. <laughs> it's probably demonic. But <clears throat> I'm saying if you have not been baptized because you're too afraid to get it up in front of everybody, we understand, and that's okay. And we will make a provision for you. If you just want to have just your family there or whatever, we just don't want anything to keep you from being baptized. We really, the goal is that you would repent, change your way of thinking, and be baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, please, please obey. Obey this. 
It's an outward sign of an inward work. That's all it is. So, enough on that? You got it? Okay, moving on. Luke 18.10, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, I'm not like that sinner and everyone else. I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Okay, this is the Pharisee, okay? But the tax collector, and now the tax collectors were the lowlifes of, of society. They were like the dishonest, kind of like today. They were like the IRS, <laughs> okay? The tax collector stood at a distance, I apologize if any of you work for the IRS. <clears throat> Stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. I tell you this, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted which leads into our third beatitude. God blesses those who are humble or meek. Again, the word is not perfect in its description, a a singular word in English. Those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole world. The word is praus, which means meek, humble, gentle, self-controlled. Actually, one one of the uses of this word is used to the hand, which means, you know, um, like horse trainers. I talked to uh, Kaylin today, Kaylin Hess, and she's a very skilled horse trainer. And she was telling me she had a horse that was 900 pounds, but with the touch of her finger, she could make that horse move. Just this. Or she said if she would grab his tail, he would back up. She said she got to the point where she could sit with a string around his neck and just with a little slight movement of her hand, this horse would move. And that's what this word means, that we are used to the hand of our master, that we are easily moved by the hand of our master. I will confess to you, I am afraid of horses. <laughs> I think they're beautiful, but I always think, man, if that horse just realized that it could just totally do major damage. <laughs> they just, but they're so, they're under the control of their master. They're, they're used to that master's hand. And that's what this word means when we are meek or humble, that we are used to being moved. That when he tells us to do something, we just do it. That when we sense that prompting from the Holy Spirit, we obey without question. That's what this word means. And the reason that that's what this, it's strength under control. It's like the strength of a 900-pound horse that could trample us and could do whatever it wanted. I mean, if a horse decided it didn't want to do what we asked it to do, I mean, what are we going to do to make it, really, like as humans? 
but that's what the meekness really means, strength under control. It doesn't mean wimpiness. It doesn't mean spinelessness. It means that you are used to what the control of your master and that you are humble and that you recognize who you are. You recognize your strengths and your weaknesses and you don't try to make excuses for them. You just know who you are. It says, um, oh, Spurgeon says, meekness is these five things. Meekness is forgiving, contented, humble, gentle, and patient. Let me say those again. Forgiving, contented, humble, gentle, and patient. That's what meekness is. How are you doing? You humble? You meek? I know I've I've failed about three out of those five. (laughs) Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Better to live humbly with the poor than to share plunder with the proud. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? See, this is the opposite of meekness. This is taking credit for it. Right? I want to talk about a couple of athletes today, and you know both of them probably. The first one is Tim Tebow. Now, Tim Tebow's gotten a lot of really bad press. He's gotten a lot of persecution, but this is a quote from him. He says, I want to be someone that was known for bringing faith, hope, and love to those needing it, needing a brighter day in their darkest hour of need. That is something that, that is a life calling for me, and so it's so much bigger than sports. Now, he's known for sports, right? He says, I am so grateful for sports because it's given me a platform to be able to share and love and care for people all over the world so I wouldn't trade that for anything. This is a meek guy. This is a humble guy. You know, despite what the the press has said about him, this is a man who knows who he is and knows what he's called to and he knows that he is not going to waver from that. He has an unswerving testimony of why he does what he does. The second person is Gabby Douglas, who is an Olympian, a gymnast. She says, it was definitely important during the Olympics to praise God because he's given me this God-given talent to go out there and represent him and share my faith with everyone. I mean, I'm not going to hold it in because he's blessed me so much throughout my gymnastics career. He's woken me up every single morning. He's just been so great to me. So I'm going to go and share it with everyone because it's a part of me and it's just who I am. She also is meek. This is a meekness. This is a powerful young lady. She's an amazing athlete, but yet she recognizes that her gift and her calling and her purpose is from the Lord and that's why he's given her favor in this area. Could you stand with me? I like to just respond to the Lord. Anytime we hear the Lord, we should respond to it, right? There should be some, something that we respond to. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, would you like to be blessed? How many of you would like to be blessed? Count me in. Sign me up. 
So let's just bow our heads before the Lord as we go before him. And Lord, we just uh, thank you, God, so much for your word. We thank you for providing a way for us. God, we thank you so much for your promises. Lord, we thank you that you long for us to be blessed. God, that that's your desire for us, Lord. You want us to be prosperous and happy and content and fulfilled and satisfied and blessed. And and we're grateful for that, Lord. God, and we long to be like these three Beatitudes that we've talked about today. If you're someone who who wants to be poor in spirit, can you just lift up your hand? Slip up your hand between you and the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be poor in spirit. I want to recognize my desperation for you so that I can inherit your kingdom, that I can live in your kingdom. I lift my hand, Lord, as a symbol, God, that I, I want to recognize not only who you are, but who I am too in light of who you are. Just thank you, Lord. The second group, I want to ask, are you someone who, who's mourning? You're mourning and you just, you need comfort. God, we, we do. <laughs> Lord, we are mourning, we are grieving, Lord, and we ask that you would draw us near the parakaleo, that you would woo us in and hold us and comfort us in all of our sorrows. Lord, and, and that you would draw us in and that you would forgive us even as we recognize, God, our tendencies and our sinfulness, Lord. The last group is, do you want to be meek? You can, you can raise your hand on all three of these, by the way. <laughs> do you want to be someone who's meek, who's strength under control? Lord, I want to be meek. God, we want to be meek. We want to inherit the earth, Lord, because we are so used to your hand guiding us. We're so used to that gentle touch by your hand telling us to go backwards or forwards or left or right or just to stay. And God, we just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to come before you. And we are so grateful, Lord, and we, we do open ourselves up, God, for your blessing. And we just thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to excuse the American Fork. Don't go anywhere yet. Um, I, I do have one more group, and that is um, if you're someone who, two more groups. If you're someone who has never come to name the name of Jesus, if you have never received forgiveness for your sins, you have never been born again of his spirit, I just want to ask you to come up and talk to me. Afterwards, I want to ask the rest of you, I'll talk to you later, but I really want people who, who have not been born again to come and speak with me. Or if you want to be baptized, you've never been baptized, I want to ask that you would come and speak with me, okay? And for the rest of you, I just want to speak God's blessing. Be blessed this week according to what we learned today, okay? Love you guys. We'll see you next week.